Welcome this morning. Welcome those that are joining us live stream. Let me just mention a couple things. Number one, we do have a baptismal service. Unfortunately, it's not at this time. Uh, all of the candidates chose to be baptized at 11.15. So that's our focus this morning. And number two, just speaking a little bit about that Super Giving Tuesday, I was talking to Dr. Thomas in India, and uh, they've had lots of things going on there, flooding. Uh, the girls' orphanage, actually, some of the, the dining room area, the floor dropped a little bit. And, um, and so now they're battling not only COVID in India, but they're d- battling Dungay fever. And so uh, just more challenges. How many know that everywhere we turn in our world today, there's a lot of challenge? And, but the good news is, uh, we serve a God who's sovereign, and hopefully I'll be able to share that with you this morning. So why don't we stand as we go to the Lord in prayer, and maybe you're here today, and uh, you have a need in your life. I know there's people in our church family, there's, there's, there's not just COVID going on, there's people battling cancer, uh, there's challenges in relationships, so I know that there's many things happening this morning. Maybe you've come with a need on your heart. Just with an uplifted hand. Why don't we do that? Why don't we lift your hand? Do you have a need in your life? Let's lift these needs to God in prayer. There's many, I know. So Father, I thank you this morning that you are here. You are a faithful, you are a loving, you are a compassionate Father. And I know this morning as we're crying out to you, you see every hand that's raised, you know every heart that's here that are listening, the needs that are being presented before you today. We thank you that you've heard our cry. You know, we've seen so many amazing answers to prayer. We've seen you raise people up. We've seen you touch and heal the sick, Lord. We've seen you, Father, open the hearts of people's lives and allow them to come to a place of saving faith. We're gonna witness that in the next service, Lord. We see you working in relationships, restoring relationships that seemed at the point of incompatibility, even uh, families that have been torn apart are now being reunited. Lord, we're seeing you do amazing things. So I pray, even today, that you'll open up the eyes of our understanding. We'll hear your voice. And Father, we will be about your business, just like Jesus said as a young boy in the temple. I must be about my Father's business. Help us, Lord, to hear your voice today and that you would commission us anew and afresh and that we would sense a powerful uh, sense of your commissioning today to go out into our broken world and bring the good news of Jesus. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I'm going to just raise a number of questions this morning. How would you describe a Christian? Isn't that great? You, you could probably just spend uh, a few minutes or uh, hours even thinking about what really denotes a Christian. What's characteristic of a genuine follower of Jesus Christ? Do we really understand God's purposes for us as a people? And are we committed for, to God's agenda for our lives? You know, sometimes we have an agenda, and we want God to kind of fulfill our agenda, but do we really understand God's agenda, God's will for our lives, and are we on that page? Because, you know, it gets very frustrating when we're trying to tell God what to do rather than listen to what God wants us to do. How I many know there's a big difference there? And I believe life changes the moment we surrender to God's purposes for our lives. Now, I want to just quote something that C.S. Lewis once wrote, and I like what he says. He says, the glory of God, and as our only means to glorifying him, is the salvation of human souls. That's the real 
business of life. And when you think about it for a minute, how many realize we're born and then eventually we come to the end of our earthly journey? And all that's done in between, what, is, what are we filling that time with? And does that have eternal significance? That's the question we're gonna be raising today. I think one of the most powerful truths in scripture, and I believe it's also a general principle of life, is simply that life produces life. Isn't that interesting? You can't get life from death. Life produces life. And there's something about life that reproduces. Now, I realize that there's also exceptions to this principle, but it's a principle that God instituted right from the very beginning of creation. I want you to notice that. It says in the book of Genesis chapter one, we're gonna be in Matthew chapter 28 if you're wondering where I'm going today. But in Genesis 1, 28, I wanna show you that there's an overarching theme through the entire Bible. In Genesis 1, 28, it said, God blessed them, this is Adam and Eve, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. So mankind was designed to be, to be reproductive. And uh, after the great flood, a little later on, there was a judgment because humanity failed to do what God asked them to do. As a matter of fact, they were living solely for themselves. You know? And if I look at our culture today, I would say the vast majority of people, it's about them. It's about my needs, it's about what I want, it's about my agenda. We get away from what God really mandates for us to do. And it's interesting, after the flood, notice what God says to the survivors, eight people, right? Noah and his family, and he says this, then God blessed Noah and his sons, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Hey, did we ever hear that before? It sounds like an echo from Genesis 1.28. God says, I haven't changed my mind. This is still what I'm about to have you do on the planet. Can we get back to the game plan, guys? That's basically what he's saying, isn't he? And it says, and then the fear and the dread of you will fall upon all the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air and upon every creature that moves along the ground and upon all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hands. So I'm noticing something that God says, I'm giving dominion over the planet to humanity. I'm making you responsible. I'm giving you a responsibility. And we'll see how they do. But uh, I, I notice a couple of things from these passages. Number one, back to what I started out with. Humanity is designed to reproduce its own kind. And number two, God gives us authority and dominion over the rest of creation in order for us to succeed at what he's asked us to do. You know, God's good. He says, I want you to do this, but I'll help you to do it. You know, he doesn't just tell us to do something and then he forgets about us. He says, no, I'm gonna help you accomplish what I've asked you to do. So I, I wrote down, with authority and privilege comes responsibility. You know, a lot of people go, you know, I, I want all the privileges in life, but none of the responsibility. How many, anybody ever heard that? Sometimes I get that from teenagers, you know. I want all the privileges of adulthood, but I want none of the responsibilities. Well, it doesn't work that way. If you got the privileges, you got the responsibility. But when God gives us a command, he also gives us the enablement. He gives us the power to carry it out. But the record of scripture is as much a story of human failure as it is of human obedience to God. And it wasn't long after giving this to Noah that Noah's descendants, what do they do? 
oh my goodness, they get away from the, the, the mandate again. And we find that in Genesis chapter 11 and verse four. They start building a tower and they're, they're busy, you know, gathering people together and it says, so that we can make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. I'm gonna get a sense this is in direct violation of what God's told them what to do. Boy, do we ever have a problem getting it right. How many sense that humanity, we have a tendency to do our own thing. Anybody get that? And God keeps reinforcing this principle. Um, I think what we fail to see is that this incident at the Tower of Babel was in direct violation of God's original command to mankind or humanity to not only increase in number, but to go out and fill the earth. And he didn't do that. So what did God do? He said, I'll fix this. He sent confusion amongst them and they could not communicate any longer. All of a sudden they had a problem with language. And how many know when you have a communication breakdown, you have relational breakdown. When you have relational breakdown, you can't do what you really want to do. And so God messed up that plan. You know, and they had to abandon their temple to the sky. And then they, then they began to obey God, uh, not because they wanted to, but because they were forced to. You know, God's going to get us to do what we need to do. Sometimes he'll even help us along the journey. And it's not always pleasant, like these guys found out. Uh, I think here we see that uh, one of the key purposes of a disciple of Jesus is that we're to be fruitful and multiply, Right? Didn't he say that? He said, go, go into all the world, scatter out there, go and make disciples. We have a mandate. We have a, a, a job to do. We have a commission and it's given to us from Jesus himself. And like the early disciples who embraced this purpose, as we embrace this command and we make this the business of our life, we enter upon the great adventure of following Jesus. Jesus does have a plan, you know, and he, he wants us to join him in his great adventure. And some of us, you know, we go, well, I, I tell you what I like, Pastor. I like giving my life to Jesus because I want to have what I call the fire insurance policy. <laughs> you know, I want the eternal life policy here, but I'm not that interested in following through on the great command of God, right? The great commission of God. That's a little different, you know, and this is what we need to hear this morning. We need to hear the words of Jesus all over again. I have to be reminded of this. You and I need to be reminded. Listen to what Jesus said as he's about to leave the planet. He's talking to his early followers and he leaves them and us. The whole church is now given this commission. He says, he came to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And so I want to take a look today a little bit at three aspects of what is known as the Great Commission. How in the world can we do what God's asking us to do? How many know that when we start walking in obedience to God, life changes for us very dramatically? And I believe it gets more exciting. And so if anybody feels like the Christian life is boring, I, all you're telling me is you're probably not doing what he's asking you to do. Because the moment you get, jump in on this Great Commission and start obeying it, I guarantee you life gets more exciting. 
It may not always get easier, but it'll get more exciting. So if you have, you have a little bit of adventuresomeness in your spirit, you know, jump on board. This is going to be a blast. You're going to start following Jesus. You're going to be on this great adventure, and he's going to take you all over the place. You're going to do stuff you never did before, and you're going to see God work in a way you never have before. How's that? Because when you live in obedience to God, there's some tremendous benefits to it. So let's take a look at this first aspect of fulfilling the Great Commission. It's simply Christ authority. When Jesus spoke to his disciples after his resurrection, he spoke from a position of absolute authority. That's powerful. His authority extends not only all over the earth, but over the entire universe. He's sovereign over the created world. Now, Jesus said it. We read it earlier. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So two thoughts come to my mind about this authority. One of them is a challenge to us, and one of them is a comfort. I'll pick on the command first, okay? I'll pick on the the more challenging side first, and then I'll come back and reassure us. How's that? But here's here's the challenge that comes to my mind. And it's simply this, that in a democratic society, we have a lot of, con- we have difficulty with authority. I'm going to tell you that right up front. We struggle with it, and I know that we do. You know, Richard Foster said it this way, our unconscious push towards democratic egalitarianism inevitably tempers the authority of the leader. And I think what he really is trying to say is that we struggle with someone who's over us. We struggle with someone who is an absolute ruler over our lives, and you know, God is. And so you say, well, I don't really struggle with God, Pastor. Well, don't, I think we've got to slow it down a little bit. Let's just reflect a little bit. Because I think every time, you know, Jesus asks us to do something we agree with, there's no problem. But you know, the hardest part in the life is, is when we have to do something that somebody in authority is telling us to do that we don't agree with. Anybody find that a little difficult? Anybody find that a little difficult? Of course, we all do. Let's be honest about it. Why don't we just call it out for what it is? We struggle with that. And how many know that there's moments in our lives that we're not going to agree uh, with what God asks us to do? Does anybody ever have a wrestling match with God? I'm reading the Bible. He's telling me to do something. I really don't want to do this. And then I'm in a wrestling match. Who's going to win, me or God? Right? Has anybody ever had to surrender something, lay something down? Yeah, if you're growing in the Christian life, you're going to have to do that. And I think the greatest places of growth is when God puts his finger on an area of your life and says, that is going to be laid aside now. You go, I don't want to do that. God says, yes, I want you to. It's for your good. Yeah, but I really enjoy doing that. God says, I really don't care. You know, you keep doing that, it's going to mess you up, you know, right? So we have that little wrestling match inside of our soul. And I'm going to just tell you from experience, when we lay that down, and we, we, we get past that point where we wrestle with it. Pretty soon we're so happy we just did what God told us to do. You'll never regret walking in obedience. The only people I know that have regrets are those who have walked in disobedience. So I'm going to encourage you today. Let's just be obedient to God. How many know that one of the struggles we have is when God delegates authority to a human being, and then he tells us to listen to them, and especially when they're not a nice person? That's really hard. I've got a nasty boss I don't really care what my husband just said. And uh, we could just go down the list, you know, the government. Oh my goodness, we have real problems there. I want to just, I want to give you a deep assurance. Can you imagine living in the time of Daniel? 
in a Babylonian, uh, in a, in a Babylonian empire, and Nebuchadnezzar as a despot. He's a total authoritative leader. He's the world conqueror, and he's no, no one's going to tell him what to do. If you disagree with him, he'll just snuff you out. So how many think that that would be a terrible system to be living underneath? You say, but that's so repressive, Pastor. Can I tell you a little secret? He wasn't in total control. Because I remember reading in my Bible this week, and I, I just refreshed myself. I'm reading along, and here's old Nebuchadnezzar walking along, and he says, man, look at the grandeur. Look at the place I built, the hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the world. I did this all for my glory. And immediately he lost his mind. The next moment, I see him in the backyard, you know, crawling on fours and eating grass and his hair's growing out, you know, and he's looking like a mess. He's his mind has snapped and the poor people that he's ruling have to put him out to pasture until his mind came back and he glorified the God who he now recognizes as sovereign over everything. So I wanna just give you a deep reassurance. Who's in control down here? God is. Woohoo! So if you, if you really believe that, then you can relax about all kinds of crazy stuff that's happening around you. Amen? See, I think we have a problem with trust. Mm. I think, as I said, the real tragedy for us is that we struggle surrendering to God's leadership and purposes for our lives. We obey what we like, and we tend, or, or we agree with, and then we ignore that which we don't like, which is a subtle form of disobedience. Many then don't understand why Christianity doesn't seem to be working in their lives but God's rule is meant to be absolute, beyond question. Uh, and you may be wondering, well, you know, pastor, I'm doing good. I, I don't disobey God. But I'm convinced for many of us, the Great Commission is a, a sore point because we're called to make disciples. And for the most part, we have a tendency to ignore this or neglect it. How many think that might be true? I mean, we're concerned about our family, but when it gets beyond them, what about the rest of the world? What about the people we really don't know? Are we really willing to extend our lives for people that may not be nice to us or we don't know who they are yet? See, that's the real question. And uh, I think we struggle with this. We struggle with a correct understanding of grace and discipleship. We have failed to realize that faith and obedience are actually tied together. You know, James will bring that out very strongly. As a matter of fact, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he says the call goes forth and is at once followed by the response of obedience. The response of the disciples is an act of obedience, not a confession of faith in Jesus. See, I, I think sometimes we got a little confused because we, we, we read the scripture that says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, you're saved, Right? But I think believe in our heart really means more than just, it, it means acting on what God is saying. That's true belief. I think sometimes we have a pseudo belief. We have an intellectual assent to truth. And by the way, the devil believes in God, but he's not gonna be saved. 
You see, so we can ascend to a knowledge of God, but we're not really obedient to God. Obedience is, is the, I think, the real ingredient to show that we really truly believe what he has to say. We're, we're acting on it. As a matter of fact, Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow, that's strong language. But only he who does what? The will of my Father who is in heaven. So you and I have to be concerned. If I really, um, if I really say Jesus is my Lord, I'm basically saying I'm doing what you're telling me to do. I, am I not? And I'm really doing God's will in my life. And I think that's very powerful. As a matter of fact, he says, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And your name cast out demons, perform many miracles. And he says, hey, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. So when, what God considers evil doing, you and I may not. Evil doing may be simply neglecting to do what God wants you to do and busy, caught up in our own little lives and our own little world. And it's about us. And I'm saying, if you really want to get healthy, which I think is getting holy, becoming more like Christ, you and I need to walk in obedience. You and I need to turn over the, uh, the operator's manual. You know, I always get a bang out of that bumper sticker that says, God is my co-pilot. It means I'm the pilot. That's problematic. I think that bumper sticker's got it totally wrong. It should be, God is my pilot, and I'm just doing what he's asking me to do. I'm the co-pilot. I think we got to get that switched around a little bit. I think that would help us a lot, okay? So you say, well, how does this all, how does the grace of God fit into all of this? I know that I'm saved not by my works, right? But responding to the call of God is an act of grace. Living in obedience to Christ takes grace. Let me say that's true. I cannot do the things God's asking me to do apart from the grace of God at work in me. For God who works in me, both to will and then to do his good pleasure. I need God's grace. I need God's grace to obey God. How many say that's true? How many here say, I need God's grace to obey God? See, pastor's got his hands up. To do the right thing takes God's grace. I can't do this in my own strength. I need help. I'm a rebel by nature. And so are all of you. <laughs> so, I mean, you can sit there very piously and go, I'm not a rebel pastor. I'm going, no, we're all rebels. And we need the grace of God to bend our will because I'll tell you, we're, we, you know, how many of us know we don't have to train our kids to be disobedient? Anybody figured that out yet? They just are like that. That's because we're like that. That's human nature. That's the sin nature, right? We can't do it apart from him. And it's only as we follow Jesus that he empowers us to obey, and in obeying, good works flow from our lives. Let me just mention this word of encouragement, because I kind of I started out with the challenge. Now, let me just encourage us a little bit with what he's saying here, too. When we live in obedience and complete surrender to Christ, the pressure of having to produce and provide in our own human strength and through our own human ingenuity is all gone. I don't worry about the outcome. I'm just doing what God's telling me to do. And you know what happens? Outcomes start happening. Beautiful ones. Since Jesus today has all authority, I can obey him without fear, no matter where he leads me or you, no matter what circumstances we're facing, he's in control. Isn't that nice? 
It's beautiful. We can relax, you know. When we read the book of Acts, we see that the early church cooperated uh, on, the, on the basis of the Lord's sovereign authority, and they ministered in the name of Jesus. When I read the book of Acts, how many like reading the book of Acts? Isn't that fun? You know, what happens in the book of Acts? They're depending on God. They're depending on God's guidance. They're depending on God's power. Now, they're not just facing a lost world on the basis of their own authority, but they're coming in the authority of Jesus Christ. That's what Warren Worsby points out to us. And I love that. And what starts happening? Miracles. You know, you know, Pete, uh, Paul recognizes here's a guy and he's lame and, he, and the Bible says the Spirit of God prompted him and said, this guy I'm gonna raise up right now. Paul, Paul says to this guy, get up and, and uh, rise up and all of a sudden this guy's healed. You know, Peter and John are just walking along to the prayer meeting and here's a guy begging for money. He'd been begging for money all of his life, almost 40 years there. And Peter and John come along, they say, silver and gold we don't have, but such as we have, we give you in the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. The man just starts walking and leaping and praising God. How many go, wow, is that impressive? See, when we're walking with God, things start happening. How many say, I want to obey God? I want things to start happening in my life. I want to see uh, supernatural things. I want to see God work in people's lives because I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. Let me move on to the second aspect of the Great Commission. It's our activity. We need to be engaged in making disciples. He's given us something to do. We're not all sitting here as uh, uh, spectators. We're called to participate with God. See, one of the reasons I'm so motivated to get you to do ministry is because I know God's asked you to do it. And I know you and I cannot grow unless we're engaged in participating. You can't sit on the sidelines and expect to grow spiritually. It doesn't work. You gotta come on the playing field. You know, I love this illustration about football. I remember reading it years ago. It's 22 guys on the field desperately in need of rest and 22,000 people and desperately in need of exercise. And I think sometimes that's the way the church is, right? You know, we'll let you do the work, pastor. We'll just sit and watch you. We'll cheer you on. I'm going, no, it don't work that way. As far as I'm concerned, everybody in this church has got a job to do. And when you don't do your part, we all suffer. Yeah, but I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Hey, God will help you to figure that out. We'll help you to figure that out. We're going to participate together. He says, now, I want you to take the initiative. We're called to be going. You know, I'm just waiting for somebody to show up in my life. No, it says you take the initiative, go. Secondly, we're to be identifying with Christ's death and resurrection. That's what baptism is all about. And then we're to teach, we're to share, we're to, we're to explain to people. He says, go and make disciples of all people groups, ethnos, it's people groups, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Man, I just like that one statement, teaching them to obey. You know, I try to do that. I'm trying to teach you to obey. God's trying to teach us to obey. Yeah, but I don't want to obey, pastor. Yeah, but if you don't obey, you're resisting the Holy Ghost, not me. You know, you think you're, you're fighting human beings. No, you're, you're either fighting God or you're fighting the devil. How's that? Who are you fighting this morning? And if I'm not obeying God, I'm fighting God. Is that clear? Ooh. It's getting quiet in here. I thought this was more of an encouraging sermon, Lord. <laughs> no, I'm just teasing. Uh, I think sometimes we're more concerned about making a living than creating a life. God has called us to something, folks. 
It's not about just making a living. God's called us to live with purpose, to live with excitement, to live with a sense that I'm involved with what God is doing in the planet right now. I'm a participant. I'm part of what God's doing. You know, I think there's a tremendous difference. When we see ourselves as here just making a living, life circumstances begin to dictate and determine who we are and what we become. Isn't that the truth? But here's what I'm going to tell you. When we see ourselves uh, as, uh, well, let me continue on. We struggle with worldliness, which means that this world becomes more and more important to us. And I see that so often that, you know, some of our, our battle today is we want to hold on to life as we've had it. What happens if God wants to change it? Is he allowed to do that? Well, he's the Lord. You know, when we think of worldliness, we always think of sinful behaviors. But let me point out to you, there's a form of worldliness that we don't really see it. And a lot of times, we don't understand that worldliness is actually an attitude and an affection of the heart. Erwin Lutzer years ago wrote a book, How in This World Can I Be Holy? And he says there, worldliness is excluding God from our lives. And you say, how do we do that? By consciously or unconsciously accepting the values of our man-centered society. Sometimes it involves covert or overt, I mean, just out-and-out sin for immediate gratifications. But more often for the Christian, it simply means living as though this world, our lives, are all that matters. That's very subtle. It's living with warped values. At its worst, it's assigning value to what God totally condemns. And at its best, it's rearranging the price tags to suit our fancy. It's rejecting God's priorities for our own. What's he saying? Who are you living for? Yourself or God? And I think we have to make a decision. You know, we have to decide. I'm here for you. And sometimes that means it's not always going to be comfortable for us. Uh, Worldliness is making this life our focus. And why are we talking about worldliness in a message about the Great Commission? Because I think it's the number one reason why we don't fulfill it. That's the reason why. Listen to what Paul writes to the Corinthians. Wrong, you know, he said, I I will just say this, wrong associations lead not only to wrong values, but often to a neglect of God's desire for our lives. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says this in verse uh, 33. Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. How many parents go, I already know that one. Uh, But sometimes it corrupts us. We hang with those we generally enjoy, and they do influence our behavior. But come back, he says in verse 34, to your senses as you ought, and stop sinning, for there are some who are ignorant of God, and I say this to your shame. What's he saying? There's some people that we're, we're we're neglecting to bring the message to. That's what he's saying. And notice what's being neglected. We're being distracted by this life instead of doing what God has called us to do. That's a challenge. Later in that same chapter, Paul challenges the Corinthians that the work of the ministry is everybody's responsibility. He talks about its value. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Are we letting things move us today? Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord. Can I stop and ask the question, are you giving yourselves fully to the work of the Lord? Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not what? It's not empty. It's not futile. It's not in vain. 
It's not temporal. It's eternal. Wow. Hey, that's what it's all about. That's what he's telling us here. Then he goes on to say this in another chapter, uh, chapter 16. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Acacia, and they have what? Devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. You know that word devoted in the Greek language is the word we get addicted. (laughs) These guys were addicts. They were. Hi, my name is Paul, and I am a Jesus addict. I'm addicted to the work of the ministry. I've been addicted for over 40 years. Almost, I actually, 47 years I've been addicted. I'm an addict. But I'm addicted to the right thing. That's what Paul's telling me. And he says they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. And I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such as these and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. That word labor scares some people. It means work. Some people are allergic to it. I've noticed it. They're allergic to work. You know, what are you giving yourself to? I I remember reading about Adoram and Ann Judson, America's most unlikely missionaries. He was a cynical actor who rejected the faith of his father She was the town belle indulged by her parents. Hardly candidates for the rigors of early 19th century in the mission field. Before they met and married, Andoram and Anne underwent powerful conversions. And they passed from death to life. And both had a passion now to join the mission field. Because many young Christians on both sides of the Atlantic were doing that. They were captured by Christ. So 13 days after they were married in 1812, they set sail for India. The Judsons found that the English governors of the subcontinent did not welcome Western visitors with their Bible and zeal. They were threatened with deportation. So they left India, and they finally ended up in Burma, which is uh, still there today. It was at that time closed, ruled by a tyrannical regime, horribly hot and disease-ridden. The Jetsons found the place dark, cheerless, and unpromising. Over time, Anne suffered from smallpox and spinal meningitis. She buried one child and saw her husband in prison for two years. Yet, she translated the gospel of Matthew into the Burmese language and strove to improve the lot of these women who were considered little more than goods. She missed her family but could happily affirm, I'm happy in thinking that I gave up this source of pleasure and I'm happy to labor for the promotion of the kingdom of heaven. Then she and her newborn baby died soon after Adoram's release. When he died in 1850, he left behind 7,000 members of the Burmese Christian church he and Anne had begun. Was it worth it? Now, we're not all called to cross an ocean. Sometimes we're just called to cross the street. That's it. See, we make it big, like, oh, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a missionary. Everybody's a missionary. We're all sent out by God. That's what it means. Just some of us have a little further to go than others. Some have to cross cultural barriers and cross language barriers. But for the most of us, we're just called to our neighbor, our office worker, the person at the store. We're called to those kinds of people, the people God is bringing into our lives. But the third aspect in fulfilling the Great Commission is the access and ability of Christ's presence. 
We can only do what God commands in the power of his presence. You know, I think this is the forgotten verse in the Great Commission. I think that's why a lot of people get discouraged. I'm going to give you the encouraging verse. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. What is Jesus saying? Everywhere you go, I go. How can he do that? He's living inside of us. Isn't that neat? Isn't that great? It's not we're going to do this in our own strength. Jesus said, why don't you guys, before I send you out, apostles, I have, I have an instruction for you. I want you to hang out in Jerusalem because I have something for you. Listen to what he says. On one occasion while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father, which he promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. We cannot do this apart from the Holy Spirit living inside of us. So why is it important to surrender absolutely to God? So the Holy Spirit inside of us could be act, activate our lives and we become willing participants and allow the power of God to live in us and then live through us to touch other people's lives. You know, so often uh, there's obstacles to all of this. I remember reading years ago, uh, Dotson Trotman. He's the founder of the Navigators. He was in Germany after the war trying to tell the German church to get their act together and, and, and witness. And they were saying, you know, we have no resources to do this with. You know, we're a struggling group of people. And then it's Dotson Trotman said, it dawned on me. When Christ sent out his men, they were in a situation so bad that it could have never been worse. No printing press, no automobiles, no radios, no television, no no telephones, no church buildings. He left them nothing except a job to do. But he said, all power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go. I'm going to go with you. I'm going to give you the power to do the job. They were living. You know, Jesus and the apostles lived in a time of occupation. Do you know that? Romans occupied the country. There were all kinds of restrictions. But you know what I love? The gospel's not restricted. You know, Paul goes, they even arrested me for preaching the gospel. I'm in jail, but I want you to know, even though I'm restricted, the gospel's not restricted. You know all those guys that are posted to keep an eye on me, all the guards? I've been preaching to them. They're getting saved. The gospel is permeating the whole Caesar's palace. How many know you cannot hold the gospel back? See, we are looking at the physical limitations, and we get all hung up about that. I'm going, forget all of that. Look at the power of the risen Christ living inside of us, the power of the Holy Spirit, and the power of the gospel. There's no, you know, if we set our minds to letting God work powerfully in our lives, we could transform our whole country. How many know that's true? But you know what's happening? The church is becoming inward-focused. We're caught up with our life and our agenda and our freedoms, and we're missing what God's calling us to, the Great Commission. Well, C.S. Lewis, you know, you guys know I, I like him. I, I, I read his book, Screwtape Letters. Anybody read Screwtape Letters? Screwtape Letters is a very fascinating analogy. What does Lewis do? He acts like this is the devil's strategy against the Christians. So he has a senior devil training a junior devil how to mess up Christians. That's the premise of the book. This is what he says in the book. It does not matter uh, how small the sins are, provided that their cumulative effect 
is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder's no better than cards if cards can do the trick. <laughs> what was he saying? He's saying, well, you can, get, you can tempt him to try to kill somebody, then you really take him out. But he said, no, no, no. He said, you know, it's got to be more subtle than that. You can get people caught up in life's amusements. That's what he's telling. It's not that cards are evil. Don't misunderstand. He's saying, if you can distract people into life's amusements, you've got them. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, the soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without warning signs or signposts that you're in the wrong direction. If you can just nudge them off the right road and let them keep moving gradually in that wrong direction, you'll get them. That's kind of a scary thought, right? You know, Lloyd Ogilvie once said regarding the Great Commission, without God, we can't, and without us, he won't. Wow. So what's the great need in the church today? Renewed obedience to the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, right? Let's go all the way back to Genesis. What did he say? Go out, be fruitful, multiply, reproduce. See, that's not just a biological thing God's talking about. It's also spiritual reproduction. Are we following this? How many are catching on? And it's all through the scriptures, but yet you and I get distracted, and pretty soon the enemy, what he's trying to do is keep us from being spiritually fruitful, effective, and reproducing. He's keeping us away from that great commission because do you know the worst thing in the world that would happen to Canada? My goodness, is if the church finally woke up. Woo! We think the answer, somebody asked me yesterday, what is the answer to all of the problems in our society today? And I said, real simple. When the church of Jesus Christ wakes up, repents, experiences God's forgiveness, gets a sense of what the purpose of life is all about and goes after it, there is, all hell is gonna break loose. And that's a good way, by the way. And the gates of hell shall not prevail. But Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail. So what is Satan doing? He's moving us away from the gates of hell because he doesn't want us to go out and make disciples. Because if that starts happening, he starts losing. He's just caught us busy doing all kinds of other things. When we regain a passion for what God is concerned about, when we again regain our voice and rediscover our purpose and rediscover our reason for living and fulfill God's will and his agenda, and we say, like Jesus did when Mary and Joseph found him in the temple, we must be about the Father's business. Then we will see real change in our nation. Let's stand. You got caught off guard today. I gave you a little break from Jeremiah because we have a baptismal service. But you know, I didn't give you a break from God speaking into your souls, right? With every head bowed this morning, how many can say, Pastor, I realize right now that I have drifted from the Father's business. That doesn't mean you're doing bad stuff. I'm not saying that. You're just saying, you know what? I have lost a passion for the lost. 
I have lo- I've gotten so distracted with all that's happening around me, I have lost a passion for the lost. It's just neglect. I've lost that sense, that urgency that people without Christ are lost. That I've gotten so caught up with this life, I have not focused in on what's about to happen. And that, you know what? I want to labor. I want to labor for that which is eternal. I want to be about my father's business. And if that's you this morning, let's make a recommitment to say, Lord, help me. Help me to be obedient to you. Help me to start praying for people. Help me to open my heart to the people around me that don't know Christ. Help me to stop focusing in on all of the, you know, we all have challenges. There's not one person in this room that doesn't have a challenge. I already know that. Some of you have probably more challenges than you know what to do with. But can I tell you a little secret? When we make first things first, everything else gets taken care of. And all the enemy wants to do is knock us off first things first. Can you see that? Put God's kingdom first. Put God's will first. Put God's agenda first. He'll take care of all the other stuff. Don't you think the Father can't take care of you? Of course he can. And I I believe that God is so gracious. He bonuses us, you know, and he allows us to have neat things happen in our lives. But that should never be the aim or the focus of our lives. How many here say, you know what? I want to recommit myself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ and doing his will for my life. And that's you this morning. Just raise your hand. That's you. I got both hands up. I want to do exactly what my father wants me to do. I want to say exactly what my father wants me to say. I want to have an impact in my generation. I, I, I want to live my life. And I've, I've even prayed this. I said, Lord, even as I'm, I'm aging and getting a little older, I said, I want to be more fruitful and more effective now than I've ever been. I want to have a greater impact in people's lives. I don't want to, I want to go out, you know, not just crawl out. No. I want to win the race. I want to run right to the finish line. Amen? Lord, just help us. Help us to get our eyes on you, on your kingdom, on your purposes, on your will, on your agenda, on the great commission, on the people around us, the people that are without Christ. I pray that you'll do a marvelous work in our lives. We rededicate ourselves to your authority and your sovereignty in our lives. Lord, help us to stop being little rebels and help us, Lord, to be obedient servants and experience the joy of your dynamic presence working powerfully in and through our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you as you leave this morning.